In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Lights be to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we need. It's a right as we kept out of sight for no more. So I'll read a book, or maybe two or three. It's such fun to hum a happy working song. Ooh, a happy working song. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's... It's not just in me, it is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney, your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, we have two treats for you. First, we have a great conversation with Dr. Dan Golding, who is the author of Star Wars After Lucas, A Critical Guide to the Future of the Galaxy. You may also know him for his Screen Sounds program and also co-hosting the Art of the Score podcast. So it's going to be a great talk with Dan. And then following that, I'm going to share with you some of my insights from having attended D23 Expo 2019. You've heard a lot of different perspectives from uh, great guests over the past few episodes, and now it's my turn to share some perspectives of the music and book-related presentations and experiences at D23 Expo, as well as some general thoughts. So let's get right into the conversation with Dan Golding. Galaxies of Star Wars stories have emerged since Disney's purchase of Lucasfilm back in 2012, with four feature films, television series, books, video games, a new theme park, land, and many more ways of experiencing Star Wars in such a short time period it's onerous to truly encapsulate the immense impact, but one book attempts to capture many of the significant elements of the new Star Wars. Dr. Dan Golding's Star Wars After Lucas, A Critical Guide to the Future of the Galaxy, masterfully weaves in the history of the franchise with the sociocultural elements of the world we all inhabit too. Dan is a senior lecturer in media and communications at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia, and he's the host of ABC Classics Weekly Screen Sounds program and co-host of the Art of the Score podcast, which critiques film scores including very recently the empire strikes back dan thank you so much for joining me on notably disney today uh, thanks so much brett thanks for having me yeah it's great to speak to you <laughs> 
Well, it's a, it's definitely a treat, and uh, glad we could get this tour too, since we're uh, halfway ar- across the world from one another. So yeah. that always adds an interesting element. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you getting up early for this, and we're, we're going to talk a lot about your background and career, and most importantly for t- t- today's content, uh, the book. But I'm wondering if you could first share with listeners a little bit about your screen studies background and your current roles in discussing and analyzing and teaching about the media. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I currently work, um, yeah, as a lecturer in in media, but I kind of mostly teach screen studies. uh, So that's film uh, TV, but also increasingly things like uh, VR, web video, streaming, um, YouTube even. Um, I've personally done quite a few video essays as well, so that all fits into that that kind of uh, pot of, of screen studies quite well. Um, but my PhD was uh, actually on video games, but how video games fit into media history um, and art history as well. Um, so taking a really broader look uh, at that kind of thing. So I, I have, I suppose, a pretty diverse background in terms of just media topics um, that I've focused on. Um, yeah, but always, and I should say that when I did that video games PhD, that was within a, a film school uh, more, more broadly. So I always had that sort of uh, film and screen focus. So when it came to teaching film and cinema, uh, it you know, I kind of slotted in really easily and certainly researching and, and writing on it uh, is something that is kind of second nature. Um, but I've always loved, as you mentioned in your, your intro, um, I, I do quite a lot of film music related stuff as well. And I've always loved film music for as long as I can remember enjoying films. Uh, music has been such a key part of that. And of course, with the Star Wars series, it's you know, so incredibly important. Uh, and, you know, the book is not about uh, Star Wars film music, although that would be a great book, I'm sure. Uh, it's got about one chapter that focuses on film music, but, you know, it's just always something that's there at the back of back of my mind. So, yeah, it all sort of comes together in this book, really, all my different interests. Hmm. Well, then I have to ask, because I, I certainly enjoyed the component on the film score music did you and find did you in fact find yourself listening to the film scores of star wars as you were developing this book <laughs> yeah absolutely uh i am a big listener to music when i write um i know a lot of people don't enjoy doing that uh, they find it distracting um but i really really enjoy especially film scores i think is totally fantastic so of course yes i had to listen to uh the most relevant uh film scores uh while writing this book i think pretty much all of them uh even the the prequels which have fantastic music as well um definitely got to work out during the writing of the book (laughs) can you can you maybe speak about the origins of the book in terms of when the idea first came about and how you decided to pursue the the content that you covered, which essentially ranges from the purchase of Lucasfilm and Force Awakens, Rogue One, and Last Jedi. Mm. Yeah, so uh, actually, initially, um, when the trailers for The Force Awakens came out, uh, I wrote some articles um for uh, the video game website kotaku i basically emailed uh or or not even emailed i um direct 
messaged uh, a friend of mine who was the editor at the time of the Australian version of Kotaku uh, and said, uh, hey, like, um, I've got some thoughts about this. You know, would you want to publish them um, if I wrote them out? And he was like, yeah, you know, go for it. Um, and so I wrote a few articles um, actually about how The Force Awakens was being marketed. Uh, and because of Kotaku Australia's uh, kind of relationship with Kotaku International, when they were published on the Australian website, um, they were eventually republished by the, the bigger American international ones and got quite a lot of traction. Um, and uh, somebody who saw those uh, was uh, the editor of a um, press, the University of Minnesota Press, which is an academic press. Uh, and at the time, they were looking for somebody to edit an anthology about the new films. Um, this was several months later, later after the film, uh, The Force Awakens, was released. Um, and they kind of came to me and said, hey, do you want to maybe think about editing a, a collection uh, about um, The Force Awakens specifically? And I kind of thought about it for a while, and I came back to them and, and said, well, look, Yes, but what if I just wrote a whole book instead of an anthology? Because <laughs> uh, I think I've got a whole book in me about all of this sort of stuff. Uh, and they sort of thought about it, and we went through the normal academic book pitching process, which is quite long and involved. Uh, but, uh, you know, it all came through really well. And, um, yeah, so that that's sort of how the book came about. As to what it would focus on, I mean, partly... Uh, it was a question of time because, uh, as I mentioned, academic publishing is long and involved and uh, quite slow and it's often quite difficult to get timely works out. Uh, but basically, I worked with them to move through this as quickly as I could. But nonetheless, by the time uh, the manuscript was turned in, not only had The Force Awakens uh, come out, but uh, Rogue One and... Uh, uh, the Last Jedi, uh, and I chose to focus on Rebels as well in there um, because I just think it's so crucial to the Disney um, era of Star Wars and setting up how that works. Um, some people have sort of suggested, oh, why didn't you wait until Episode Nine came out? But I think, you know, I think that this is really a junction point that the book covers, um, that episode nine will be another junction point for Star Wars, especially under Disney, but it will be a different kind of junction point. So really what I'm covering in the book is the first saga film in detail, uh, the first standalone film, Rogue One, in detail, and the first uh, TV series, uh, Rebels, in detail. And then uh, The Last Jedi acts as a kind of bookend to that material um, because, you know, of course... You know, since then we've had Solo, which the book doesn't really cover, uh, just because it, uh, you know, the entire manuscript was was basically off with the princes by the time that film came out. Uh, such as the nature of publishing, um, and you know, I think Solo says different things, as does Resistance, the new animated series uh, about the Disney era, and I'm sure the, um, the Rise of Skywalker will say different things, as will The Mandalorian and the you know the many, many, many hours of Star Wars content that Disney's got coming down the pipeline uh, for us. So, yeah, broadly, yeah, the idea was to cover this first 
um, you know, the, the, the reestablishment of the Star Wars brand, really, under Disney with the, the first saga film, the first standalone film, and the first animated series. Well, and I think it was, it not only was it intentional from a timing standpoint, but it's also, I, I'm, I'm the type, as a reader, like, I'd rather see more depth than breadth when you're covering uh, a topic as broad as Star Wars, so what really is a highlight of this book is that there is that room for exploration of many of the the themes and subtext of these different entities in the Star Wars Star Wars universe. Um, I, I'm wondering, Dan, early on in the book, you you had noted that in like the olden days of Star Wars, that Academe was one of the earliest sources of criticism in terms of the Star Wars brand, and I'm wondering especially with the advent of the internet and social media, and, and mm-hmm. you t- touched beautifully on the, the notion of reaction videos. In what ways would you say have critiques of Star Wars changed over time and across platforms? Yeah, um, so that was definitely surprising for me because I kind of always assumed that, you know, because there's this kind of element of or air of criticism around Star Wars right from the beginning that it's kind of um historically some people have argued that you know it's this kind of uh um harbinger of a, a kind of um dumbing down i suppose of mainstream culture and certainly american cinema and that a lot of people see it as the end of the era of, of new hollywood where you know, directors like um, Arthur Penn and, you know, films like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider and these sorts of things uh, were made that are really smart films that, you know, engage with really pressing topics in, um, well, not just American but global society. And, that you know, Star Wars came and destroyed everything and, and, and made it about, uh, you know, space lasers and stuff. Um, and actually... I think that a lot of that, as I outline in the book, comes from academia, actually, initially. So the film, when it was released, was reviewed really well. There's a kind of, you know, maybe a sense of reluctance with some of the reviewers, like, because it was so incredibly popular. Um, they're sort of, you know, oh, what's this What's this thing that all the kids like? You know, there's a sort of sense of that in some of the reviews, but pretty much across the board, even the most reluctant reviewers, even people like Pauline Kael, who was renowned for being uh, pretty miserly with some of her reviews, you know, they sort of say, well, actually, the film's a lot of fun. I can see why people like it. Um, And so really the first critiques uh, stem from academic works um, where they sort of take apart the, the politics of the films a little bit more uh, directly uh, and deeply. Um, there's a really fascinating critique from an academic called Dan Raby. Uh, I think it's from 1978, so just the year after the first film was released, where it essentially pulls apart the film for what he, he sees as a kind of cultural justification of Vietnam, which is not at all what Lucas intended. In fact, Lucas intended the complete opposite, but perhaps that wasn't completely clear until uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, But, you know, it's nonetheless, I think, a really fascinating article because of how different it is to the bulk of critiques that came afterwards uh, in that mostly 
uh, the academic critiques throughout the 80s and the 90s were that the Star Wars series allowed people to switch off, to completely forget about the um, problems of the present. As I mentioned before, films like Easy Rider, Bonnie and Clyde were very much seen as parables for, or, or you know, direct commentaries on the plights that faced America and the world at the time, whereas Star Wars is very escapist. Um, you know, there's you have to work a lot harder to see metaphors there. Um, and this is partly one of the reasons that uh, academics, I think, criticised it, is because it's it allows its audience to be so disengaged, I suppose, or not even allows, it encourages, I think, a certain amount of escapism. Um, and George Lucas, even though he did intend political elements to be there, I think would nonetheless agree that escapism is a really huge part of Star Wars and all of his films, actually. Um, so that's kind of how the critiques were of the old trilogy. Um, and I, you know, sort of argue that um, George Lucas was aware of these and responded with the prequels and that he creates this universe where morality is not black and white um as as kind of you know potentially ham-fisted depending on how you see the prequels um but i think probably you can't deny that some of the political uh storytelling of the prequels is quite complicated and perhaps not quite as effective as george lucas intended it to be but when you take a step back and see what he was trying to do he was trying to i think problematize the straightforward good guys and bad guys of the original trilogy. I mean, that's literally how the opening text uh, to Revenge of the Sith begins. It sort of says, you know, there are there are good people on both sides. There are heroes on both sides, sorry. And, um, you know, even if perhaps the films don't quite reflect that, uh, I think that's partly what he was trying to do is to respond to the criticism. And this is another argument of the book that pretty much all Star Wars films respond to the previous Star Wars film uh, and it's written, you know, the previous Star Wars films reception. We see that even in the Disney era, but yes, definitely the way that, uh, as you asked across platforms, I mean, things like reaction videos and the internet has meant that, you know, I think you can see a real um, change in the level of fierceness with the criticism, with the prequels. Um, George Lucas um, puts a lot of that at the foot of the internet and blames the internet um, to a huge degree. He says it was all fine up until the internet. Uh, but, you know, that's only intensified with the Disney era and particularly, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point, uh, but, you know, the... The way that, uh, you know, uh, w uh, female characters, women characters have become the leads of the Star Wars universe uh, in a very clear way uh, and that people of colour as well, characters of colour have become the leads in the universe. I mean, I still think really there's not been a huge, you know, there's not been an unambiguous white male hero in the Disney era, um, which is quite something like a new sorry one that didn't previously exist in um you know they've largely been people of color and women so you know that has been something that is 
uh, ripe for kind of, uh, you know, internet-based criticism, shall we call it, um, but, you know, has meant that films like The Force Awakens fell in with um, the same kind of uh, broader online culture wars with uh, Ghostbusters and uh, Mad Max, Fury Road, um, these sorts of films, which have also been flashpoints at actually similar times. Um, it's so, you know, it's really changed and what people see as political in a Star Wars film has changed as well. So it's, you know, that's a very long-winded answer to your question. But, uh, I mean, yes, it's, 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 it's a, you know, I mean, we're talking about a franchise that encompasses, you know, more than four decades now. So there's there's massive shifts in terms of how it's been uh, perceived and, and how it's, uh, you know, been a source of controversy for people over years. Well, yeah, there's so much to dive into based on uh, some of the points you touched on. And, and I'd love for you to, to maybe elaborate a little bit on the prequel films, because indeed, most much of the content of your book centers on since Disney's acquisition. But you really wonderfully weave in how certain elements across the original trilogy and prequels have implications for the subsequent films. And in regards to the prequels, you talk about in terms of how some of the characters are depicted in a very multifaceted way. So, for instance, I, I really appreciated your commentary on Padme in that in the first film uh, that she appears, uh, Phantom Menace, how she's you know very much this political figure and very engaged, and we see that there's a, a real complexity to her. But then by the time Revenge of the Sith comes around, she's very much passive and in the background and doesn't have a lot to do, which very much mirrors how female characters have been in a lot of the films uh, prior. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's such an interesting character and, you know, I, I got to say that um, there's been some fantastic academic research on the figure of Padme um, before, before I wrote a word. Um, and so like a lot of like reading that research and going through it um, was a really eye opening experience. I, I think one uh, researcher points out that she's the only, literally the only female character who has any lines in Revenge of the Sith, which I found kind of shocking. I'd, I'd never really realized that. Um, which yeah like I, I had to basically go back and check and like yes it's right um you know um mon mothma was gonna have some lines but they hit the cutting room floor and so padme is the only female voice in the entire third prequel film um and more than that uh, i mean the vast majority of her lines are either about anakin or to anakin um so she really serves as a kind of adjuncts you know um plot device really to his broader story uh, rather than really having one of her own by the time the third film comes around and that's quite different to the previous two films um so that's a real transformation for her character and in, in what a lot of people including myself really consider to be what you know one of the better prequel films if not the best um, so, you know, that's, that's quite surprising. Um, and certainly, you know, it's quite different to, um, Leia's character arc as well, uh, in that, you know, she <clears throat> really, uh, maintains a sense of independence and agency and, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the, the trademark Carrie Fisher, um, 
pluck, you know, taking no nonsense from anybody uh, right throughout all of the original films. So, yeah, that, that was that was surprising. And as I said, yeah, like um, it's really stemmed from, uh, you know, the academic research, despite me saying that they uh, they're just a, a source of uh, criticism for in, in uh, the original films. I think, yeah, it's a really, really interesting point that a lot of people have made there. Well, and what I appreciate about your book is that you integrate all of these different sources, whether it's other academics or scholars of Star Wars, or even even drawing on other fields of study that are not even media-related and talking about gender and race and all these other topics that are very much manifest in, in different ways within the Star Wars universe. What, what techniques did you engage in to curate so much information, but yet from a reader's standpoint, I felt like it's all very accessible and, and very well placed. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you 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 feel that way. It is, yeah, it is. Um, you know, a bit of a challenge. I think you know because Star Wars is such a um universal topic for so many people and such a huge part of their lives that uh, you know it's you have to look at it from so many different angles i think um which is which is partly related to that i mean like yeah <clears throat> i think it's also just the way that i do things um <laughs> i mentioned before that my phd was on video games but from a kind of media and art history perspective so i'm kind of used to taking um a familiar topic and you know defamiliarizing it through a bunch of different other perspectives and strategies and and really kind of fields um i mean in my thesis i was looking at um video games through um italian landscape painting for example from the sort of 17th century in, in one section or um writings about uh, uh the um american wilderness in early colonial days um in another uh, so you know <laughs> i don't know i i don't know if there's so much a like a set of strategies that i use that i can clearly define for you right now it's more like a gut instinct that i follow these ideas through different pathways and where i feel like they should end up rather than the kind of limits of of the field that I would normally be inclined to follow. So, yeah, I'm glad that it works for you <laughs> as a reader. It's good to hear, yeah. Well, I think what's so important, too, is that films are much more complex than just pure entertainment to mm. enthrall an audience. There's, and especially, and, we've, and, and you know this as well as anybody, Star Wars there has so much complexity because it's not only a, a series of films and TV shows and video games and books and all that, and it's this shared universe with a lot of unique directions. But there's there's so much social commentary, there's so much depth and insights about ourselves as uh, as humans, even if we're not uh, necessarily in the Star Wars galaxy. And I, uh, I I feel like that that is captured very well in the book. But I also really appreciated how. You, you know, you speak to the the negatives of Star Wars and and how George Lucas, as well intentioned as he has been in a lot of respects, has created characters that have been polarizing for their depictions of 
certain groups. You talk about Jar Jar Binks, among others. Can you can you maybe speak to how fan communities, but and also even just the general public, is viewing some of these Star Wars characters in a different light over time? You talked a little bit about Padme, but perhaps some of the others across really all of the different eras of Star Wars. Yeah, well, actually, I think Jar Jar Binks is a fascinating example uh, that you mentioned just then. I mean, the way that at uh, Star Wars Celebration, that's the you know the official Lucasfilm and, and now Disney uh, convention, uh, fan convention, where they do a lot of their uh, their their announcements and stuff like that. Um, Ahmed Best uh, was was kind of greeted as a returning hero, really. I guess um, this is his first, I think, his first ever celebration appearance. Um, and certainly his first Star Wars-related appearance in, you know, decades, basically since the prequels were coming out. Um, and so, you know, the given the amount of flack that that character has received over the years, um, often for, you know, quite justified reasons, there's there's, you know, a huge discussion about the character and whether um, basically the performance is based on racial stereotypes. Um, there's a, a particular um, character, Stepan Fetchett, um, which is a you know really kind of not not good uh, cliche from the sort of uh, well silent but also early sound era of of American cinema. Um, that a lot of reviewers compared Jar Jar Binks to this kind of um, full type African American character, um, and you know I think um, there was a lot of fierce debate about that because Ahmed Best, in particular, the actor, said like you know how ridiculous uh, this is not what I was doing at all, um, you know how could I, um, you know how how can I be accused of doing this? It was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, but, you know, it's nonetheless been really, really, really present in the discussion of his character. But, you know, there was a whole bunch of other criticism rolled up in his character that it was, you know, he was, uh, you know, the, the character was irritating, uh, that it was just for kids, that he was needlessly kind of um, stupid and irritating, <laughs> um, you know, that he brought an element of, um, of slapstick humor into the Star Wars universe that, wasn't needed or wanted uh, and that became very personal for Ahmed Best very personal this is the early era of the internet as I as I mentioned again um, and you know caused him huge mental health issues which he you know in the last few years has has come forward about and I think that's been a Maybe a kind of a, a moment of change for a lot of hardcore Star Wars fans who go to things like celebration who see him very much as an individual you, the other factor of course is that uh you know people who grew up with the prequels as, as their first exposure to star wars are now adults uh the, you know it's no longer uh what it was in the early or mid 2000s where you know the the, the main the the people who were leading the conversation about the prequels were people who'd grown up being fans of the original trilogy well now people 
just accept the prequels as part of the Star Wars universe that's always been there because they existed often before they were born. Uh, and they're now, you know, approaching adulthood and again leading the conversation about what these stories and what these films mean to people. And so I think, you know, seeing Armored Best getting a really rapturous, rapturous um, response, a celebration with people chanting his name uh, and giving him huge standing ovations. I mean, I think that's really compelling. I think that's really, really interesting to see the shifting generations, um, but also the shifting responses um, among Star Wars fans, I think, to, well, the franchise's history, I suppose. Yeah, it, it is definitely fascinating, especially recognizing that, you know, you can have fans who are ardent supporters because they just love everything that Star Wars represents, but then there are some who are looking at it from more of a cultural standpoint and a racial standpoint and how different characters and, and performance are represented. And, and it makes me think, too, and this wasn't touched on as much in, in the book, and also it's more reflective of what's happened over the past year, year and a half, but with uh, Kelly Marie Tran, who played Rose, and and the pure just internet hatred there had been for for this uh, lovely young actress. What, what's your sense of how some Star Wars fans that are just extremely vocal are kind of you know tainting individuals' just reputations and and their roles in in beloved movies? Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, the Kelly Marie Tran example is another totally, totally fascinating um, and and complex case. I mean, in the same way as Ahmed Best was received, I mean, she was received even perhaps even more rapturously. You know, at the the episode nine uh, panel, you know, people chanting her name, uh, you know, in unison in the audience, and you know, this is her. That was her first Star Wars related appearance after. Um, the Last Jedi, uh, which you know, as you as you said, was well, it's her Star Wars debut, but it was also the flashpoint for all this hatred uh, for her. And I think that you know, part of the interesting story here is that it's becoming increasingly difficult with the internet and with our current sort of political and cultural moment. I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to sort. Um, you know, what we might problematically call genuine Star Wars fan critique. So, like, criticism from Star Wars fans who engage with these films purely as films and who might say, you know, the the character of Rose just didn't do it for me and here I'm going to write up my complaint. It's increasingly difficult to separate that from people who are not acting in good faith and who see huge films like this and like the Marvel films and any major blockbuster as kind of an opportunity for them to engage in a kind of cultural war that they, you know, um, as I said, you know, um, spread not in good faith. You know, they're about, you know, all sorts of regressive political um, ideologies. They're about, you know, what we've seen, um, actually, the, the, the previous book, that I wrote this was in part about, well, it was about gender and video games, and it touched, of course, on Gamergate. And there are several public leading figures in that 
terrible cultural moment of Gamergate, who who made statements more or less to the effect that I actually don't really care about video games. I just thought that this was a great moment for me to kind of give my political enemies a bit of a bloody nose. Um, and so, you know, you see that, I think, with... Um, I was reading also some academic work about Mad Max uh, Fury Road recently. And, you know, a lot of the high-profile criticisms of that film come from, like, actually come from men's rights activist websites, you know, like sort of some places where you would not normally turn to for film criticism, in other words. And so, you know, today when we talk about, you know, Kelly Marie Tran, when we talk about the contemporary response to the Star Wars films at the moment, I think it, it's so difficult to sort of separate what's going on in Star Wars fandom versus what's going on in the greater political sphere. I mean, almost certainly there is significant overlap. It's not like these realms exist in different universes, but, you know, that kind of good faith versus bad faith commentary on the films people who are you know not actually really here to talk about star wars but view it as a recruiting ground for particular perspectives you know i think that is a really new um, and, and troubling thing um because as well it means that star wars fandom um becomes i mean i saw a headline i think it might have been wide or something like that you know the the year that star wars fans ruined star wars or something like that being being last year uh and you know i think that that star wars fans gained a reputation for being particularly horrible where you know like yes actually star wars fans have always been vehement we've seen that with the prequels already as discussed but at the same time i think actually what might be happening is Star Wars as a kind of cultural moment is just a flashpoint for larger things going on in culture rather than just a particular reflection of a particular fandom, if that makes sense. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, and we live in an age where the ability to, to spread your perspective can reach such a vast audience. It could be picked up by different outlets and, and supporters and thus spread hate. And, you know, on the flip side, we can also see uh, massive waves of passion for certain properties and projects. And you, yeah. you illustrate that with the, the reaction videos, among other uh, mechanisms. W one thing that, that we're talking a lot about, Dan, is the, the role of, of time and how that, how that really comes about in different ways across the films. And I noticed one theme that was threaded across your book uh, really well was the notion of nostalgia. And I, I'm a, I'm in, in my own life and in my own interests, I, I'm very nostalgic, loving things from my childhood and wanting to see things come about in new ways. And you touch on this from the standpoint of a lot of modern film these days, uh, especially a lot of modern American film, is very much centered on revisiting the past and trying to make things new again. And with the newer Star Wars films, especially with The Force Awakens, as you illustrate, in many ways parallels the original Star Wars A New Hope. And I'm wondering, Dan, if you could maybe talk about the notion of films like that 
balancing both nostalgia and contemporary relevance because there are indeed some visual cues in the movie that uh, have some parallels to the original, but you also talk about in subtle ways. Could you talk about the challenges behind, from your standpoint, the challenges behind films like The Force Awakens wanting to capture that old school feeling, but also feeling fresh? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think nostalgia is so key to Star Wars uh, from the first, (laughs) you know, (coughs) pardon me, the first frame of the first film. Um, And so it's kind of funny to me in a way that nostalgia has become such a kind of, um, you know, like it's an all-encompassing critique for a lot of people of the new, the Disney era films, particularly The Force Awakens and and to some extent Rogue One, you know, like just having, you know, it's a sort of proverbial uh, water cooler conversations with people. They'd be, you know, you still hear today, oh, you know, The Force Awakens, it was fine, but it was just too nostalgic. And it's sort of like, well, it's, it's funny because that's the exact criticism that people had of, um, the first film, A New Hope, because, you know, it, it it is very deliberately a nostalgic film. It's about, you know, the media of um, George Lucas's childhood, or at least his generation's childhood, of these kind of, you know, the Flash Gordon serials, um, war movies, westerns, all of these kind of genres, which had actually gone out of fashion by 1977, it's hard sometimes, I think, for us to kind of contextualize the moment when Star Wars was released. But, you know, these genres, the Western was not really like a living genre at that point. It had sort of calcified and become parodied and been revised already by the time that Star Wars came out. Um, just to take one example, let alone the kind of... Flash Gordon style serial, which had definitely, definitely not been a thing for many decades, but you know, was perhaps being replayed on TV at the time. So maybe some people had a kind of um, familiarity through a different context. Anyway, so you know, Star Wars as an entire project is nostalgic. I would say that's the defining kind of approach for the entire franchise. So to kind of see people criticize the force awakens for being nostalgic is kind of like bewildering to me it, like that's the point <laughs> like if 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 you're not here for nostalgia with star wars what what are you doing like what's what's you know what's going on what what do you enjoy these films for i mean you know maybe that's a little harsh but you know it's kind of it, it, as i said it's a little bewildering to me so you know the force awakens you know, nonetheless, I mean, like, yeah, I think you make a good point about being fresh, though, because the the first film in 1977 did feel incredibly fresh, despite the fact that it was drawing on all these influences in very direct ways. And by by direct, I mean, you know, to the degree where, like, George Lucas edited together a bunch of World War II um, uh, air combat films, films like um, uh, 633 Squadron uh, uh, in particular, Um to basically give uh, the newly formed ILM references for all the shots for the Death Star um, fight sequences, the the you know the air combat 
sequences, the space combat sequences. You know, so literally building new material over old material uh, very directly. You know, you can compare the shots and it's like, it's very clear um, that's where it's come from. Uh, and so, yeah, we, you know, probably the key difference is that The Force Awakens is not so much nostalgic for, for older media as it is nostalgic for Star Wars um, and a particular kind of older Star Wars, which a lot of people, I think, saw as manifesting in, in a kind of, you know, at its highest criticism, a, a kind of remake um, which I I don't think The Force Awakens is, certainly not in a pejorative sense. It, it's no accident that The Force Awakens uh, looks and feels like A New Hope. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, there's the visual cues, of course, but also I think there's a, a sense of spirit, a sense of breathlessness. George Lucas has described his films uh, as having a kind of giddy effervescence, that's certainly true of A New Hope, and it's probably true to some degree of American Graffiti. Um, THX 1138, probably not so much uh, if you've seen that film. Giddy Effervescence is about as far from uh, the spirit of that film as uh, you could get. But, you know, I think The Force Awakens has this has this breathlessness that also the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark shares, where you're kind of moving from one thing to another, but also the characters are really good-natured. like, And I think this is one of the most nostalgic. And, you know, um, one of the elements that forces The Force Awakens to stand very much apart from even still contemporary blockbusters where when the Avengers get together, right? I mean, the first thing that happens when a superhero meets another superhero is that usually they either make fun of their name or their costume, right? This is <laughs> this is how superheroes meet these days. They sort of say, like, oh, really? Like, that's your, that's your you know, you were going with the whole Captain America thing, or, you know, like, we're making fun of your Boy Scout outfit, right? Um, there's this kind of, maybe it's good-natured, but their fundamental um, uh, you know way of interacting at best is kind of this good-natured dig at each other and at worst you know we see Batman versus Superman you know this kind of incredibly male masculine posturing you know I'm gonna be the superhero no I'm gonna be the superhero no you know I'm gonna save the world kind of like total refusal to get along whereas the force awakens like yes look Ray mistrusts Finn at first because she thinks that he's <clears throat> stolen uh, <clears throat> that he's stolen the jacket, right? There are these minor points of friction, but they get over them so quickly. And more than that, I mean, Ray and Finn have been in each other's company for about, you know, 10 minutes before they escape on the Millennium Falcon. And they have this moment of pure kind of joy with each other, of, of kind of babbling, like, wasn't that amazing? How did you do that flight move? What, you know, great shooting, you know, that kind of thing, where they instantly, genuinely like each other. And that, to me, is kind of similar to the vibe of the original film, this kind of heady positivity and optimism that was not part of American cinema at that point. 
especially in rea- relation to films, as I mentioned before. You know, I keep going back to the example of Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde. We could throw other films in there, even Apocalypse Now, The Graduate, um, these sorts of things, right? Optimism is not part of that universe, but it is part of the Star Wars universe. And I think that that's something that by turning to the past, uh, The Force Awakens was really able to make fresh. And I still think it's the most exciting thing about that film. It's giddiness. Yeah. Well, and, and I think you touch on a lot of those points very well in the book, too, that there's this lack of cynicism, that there's a, and I'm not tr- trying to put words in your mouth, but almost like a, a sense of purity to the to what the film represents in an era where so many big films that you mentioned, like Batman versus Superman, or among others, that that have a, a sense of like just a, a brooding or masculinity, or or just trying to as, as kind of assert themselves as like, oh, you know, s- stuff in the past is uh, garbage, or uh, you know, let let's kind of question society. Whereas with with Force Awakens, there there's that just genuine joy and. Uh, enthusiasm that that really harkens back to the olden golden days of cinema yeah for sure Uh, yeah (laughs) i definitely agree i think yeah the way you put it like a lack of cynicism yeah i definitely agree with that yep Mm. and you also touched too on part of that also stems from jj abrams style as a as a director with you know one film that you touch on it a, a little bit but super eight which is one of those movies that feels like it's straight out of et or the goonies or that era of movies with you know kids on an exciting unexpected adventure and there's some science fiction mixed mixed in too and he carries that same spirit to he's carried it to star trek films and, and similarly with force awakens and that directorial style really translates yeah absolutely i think you know um a lot of people make the easy joke about Abrams, uh, like his directorial style being uh, lens flares, right? <laughs> which is, which is true uh, to a certain extent. I mean, uh, Super Eight, uh, as much as I love it, I, literally the last thing you see is a lens flare of uh, the alien spaceship uh, disappearing off into the beyond. Mm, spoilers, I suppose. Sorry, <laughs> but you know that's definitely part of his style. But uh, look, you know more than that more than anything i think yeah what you say is totally right he he has this kind of spielberg-esque george lucas-esque optimism in his filmmaking which yeah is really you know it's such a central part of the american film industry dating back to filmmakers like um you know frank capra right like makes these Actually, you know, like films like um, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, they on the what we remember about them is their optimism, their lightness, their happiness, their life affirmingness. But actually, they can be very dark, and there, you know, there are parts of that film where things are really, really dark and grim. And same with, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. There are very dark moments of those films, but he brings the lightness out of them as the defining factor and this kind of, you know, um, mythic uh, American optimism. I know I'm not an American now. I'm kind of, uh, you know, telling you all about your your own your own uh, national national myths. But, you know, I think at least 
<laughs> at least as 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 manifested in cinema i think it's um it's so it's such an essential part of american filmmaking um and and it's not so common these days and maybe someone like jj abrams is is an heir to that legacy in a way yeah well and and it makes me think too because you you make some really good points there about certain directors having those touches i would totally be game for seeing brad bird direct something out of the star wars future properties because if you look at a film like tomorrowland that just bleeds optimism Mm. in in all the best ways possible that a lot of people took umbrage with but in essence it has the the same wonderful qualities as as uh, something like a an original Star Wars. Mm. Yeah, uh, no, I completely agree. I think Brad Bird would be would be fantastic. I, I you know, and I think Tomorrowland, like as much as there are some some odd elements to that film, I mean, I think you know the kind of uh, legacy of of well of Disney really. Um, like Disney himself, Walt Disney, but also you know the World's Fairs and that that kind of stuff. I mean, I think that's such a integral um, part of this kind of filmmaking. Uh, I'm actually teaching a course uh, this uh, this semester, which starts um, next week, uh, about film and technology. And the last few weeks, we'll be working through stuff like yeah, Tomorrowland and literally the the land of Tomorrowland at Disneyland. Uh, and you know its relationship with the world's fairs and its influence over Disney, um, and so you know that that kind of optimism, but also the the kind of um, almost like futurology, I suppose, but optimistic forecasting of the future um, that's tied up historically, you know, even in the 19th century, um, and like the Columbian Exposition and stuff like that. Yeah, it's all there. I think you know there's a huge thread running through um, filmmaking. Um, and these kind of films to those kind of, of moments. Yeah, for sure. Well, in light of that offline, I definitely want to talk, talk with you about that uh, in the core syllabus because I absolutely love anything Tomorrowland or, or Epcot or things in that mm. Disney technology future sense. So uh, <laughs> sounds, sounds fascinating. But, uh, but I do want to press back um, to the book. I know we, I, I've wandered off a little bit, but... I, I'm interested. You, you, as you illustrate uh, the different main properties since Disney's acquisition of Star Wars, you cover Rogue One, a Star Wars story. You talk about the diversity of the cast and some of the interesting narrative choices. But one, one thing I thought was really interesting that you touched upon were the was the notion of the continuity of the Star Wars universe via side characters, and you you really illustrate how in Rogue One. We see, you know, appearances by some very familiar characters in really unique ways. Could you talk about how Rogue One kind of drives that momentum of honoring the past by having a familiar storyline and themes and in some cases, like I said, characters, but also having some unique identities and directions? Mm. Yeah, well, Rogue One, I think, is a really interesting one because... um, you know, I think a lot of people, especially those who'd criticized The Force Awakens for being too nostalgic, kind of grabbed, like, latched on to Rogue One as being like, ah, here's the new film, here's the one that's really different 
from what we've seen come before. And, you know, I think a lot of that comes from tone. Um, you know, it's strange to say that Rogue One is the war movie when literally the entire franchise has war in its name. But, you know, it, it is. It, 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 well, it's a different kind of war movie, at least, rather than the kind of adventure war movies that the first Star Wars draws upon, like 633 Squadron that I mentioned before, um, and, you know, the, the Guns of Navarone, those sorts of films. Um, Rogue One, you know, I think draws on, um, uh, you know, the you sort of um, Kelly's heroes, you know, these sorts of um, more gritty uh, sort of we'll get we'll get the gang together and go on an impossible kind of suicide mission um, style movie, um, but at the same time, its visual language is very much drawn from i think films about the post-colonial wars of the 20th century films like the battle of algiers um which you know is very different uh in terms of the visual language from the original star wars films even though george lucas says that he was intending them to be a kind of vietnam parable to some degree the visual language is not there um it's it doesn't look like apocalypse now in any sense whereas you know rogue one to some degree does um, but <clears throat> if you actually look past the visual elements, as you say, yeah, like the actual characters are very familiar to the Star Wars universe. You know, we've got the pilot, we've got the, the kind of, um, you know, um, mercenaries, we've got the spiritual warrior these are star wars archetypes really that have been drawn together um and perhaps presented in new ways perhaps partly even just through casting um i mean i think donnie yen in particular has an amazing impact um as as his character um you know in, in a way that's means that he seems like a very i mean he's not actually a jedi but you know <laughs> he's the kind of jedi like character right um and so you know it's a familiar archetype for the star wars universe presented in a in a very different way i think and you know i think that's kind of yeah how rogue one was successful is by just kind of tweaking the star wars formula but you know it is still incredibly nostalgic in ways that the force awakens is not uh in, in the fact that it ends literally butting right up against uh a new hope you know in terms of five minutes of of, of narrative time but also in the way that it's got so many more like moments of, hey, look at that character over there. That character's in X scene in the original trilogy. Um, you know, that those kind of moments. But, you know, even with its super, super um attentive nineteen seventies um production design, there are so many mustaches everywhere in this film and um, you know, some really nice uh, oranges and, and browns that were very hip in 1977 that are not so much today um, to, you know, even making, I mean, you know, <clears throat> one of my favorite anecdotes, and I go into this in the book about Rogue One and nostalgia 
is the way that they actually had to improve on the past because um, the original Stormtrooper helmets in the original films, the grill on the side of the helmet is just a sticker. But right. if, you, if you film that in, um, you know, with great, amazing, contemporary, high-definition digital cameras, it looks like rubbish. And so when they made the Stormtrooper helmets, they had to make the grill an actual grill and indent it. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, if we only did as much as the original did, your memory would say that we'd done it worse, um, you know, because that's how nostalgia works. It's always better in our memory than when we actually see it in front of us. And so they had to make the past better in order to make it convincing. Yeah, I thought I thought that was a really interesting example of of kind of bringing bring back the past, but, you know, having to adapt to, you know, contemporary filming needs and uh, high definition, as, as you mentioned. Another, another way of different elements being threaded across the Star Wars films is its music. And being that mm-hmm. we're a, a Disney book and film podcast, I, I couldn't, I would be totally remiss if we didn't talk about the music and you, you mm-hmm. dedicate a, a portion of the book uh, toward the music. I'd, I'd love to see a whole book on that uh maybe a sequel but mm. <laughs> you you talk about the the sheer number of motifs and themes across the star wars films and this was something that we actually touched upon on notably disney um at, at the inception of the podcast about some of our favorite tracks from all the star wars films and i'm wondering um dan if you have if you can think of some maybe favorite ways or examples of how the legendary themes manifest in the modern films because certainly we get john williams for the main saga films but we've also gotten michael giacchino via rogue one and Mm. john powell whose solo score i'm absolutely in love with but i'd love for you to maybe expand (laughs) on on uh those different motifs or themes coming about in the newer films or perhaps being adapted yeah i look i just i think i keep pinching myself that i get to live in an era where such great new star wars music is actually being created uh and you know i can't wait for john williams's last star wars score if his interviews are to be believed and i i you know it makes sense i think with um rise of skywalker this year i think it's uh, just absolutely cannot wait to hear what he's pulled together for that um but i mean gosh yes look i agree with you about the solo score uh, you know i think um there's a lot of music to love in that film a lot of music to love and really in many ways it's such a pity that we won't get more solo music i imagine there won't be kind of a solo too at least not in 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 that form that we might have otherwise have expected it had that film been a success um we might see something on on tv um but yeah you know i think john powell did such an amazing job i i want to write something um probably something soon i don't know in what context but i want to write something about the queue uh where they're escaping the Imperials uh, in the Kessel Run, uh, and you know this is the big the big chase where they um, you know eventually turn into the the kind of more the the you know in you know go way off track. That cue is called Reminiscence Therapy. Oh yes, uh, and and it's got 
<laughs> it's got so much good music in there, but it's just filled, you know, with uh, quotes of like the asteroid field, um, qu- you know, quotes from uh, Tie Fighter Attack uh, in you know the first film, um, little snippets of like the Imperial motif, um, just all together. And John Powell um, gave this great interview to um, uh, Film School Monthly, which is a um, great film music publication that I read all the time uh, where he, he described why that cue was called reminiscence therapy, because it's, it's a kind of thing when, when people have, um, I think got amnesia uh, of trying to remind them of who they are by basically like bringing them objects from their uh, life, you know, um, and telling them stories, etc. And he says that it's kind of like he imagined that, for solo in that it's music from moments that haven't yet happened in his life that are turning up in order to kind of tell him about who he's becoming in this moment. Cause of course this is really the first major time where he pilots the Falcon himself as well. And, you know, I just think that's such a wonderful idea of the music not only matching the drama and kind of being exciting for audiences but also telling us about a character that is yet to develop and we understand that because of the seriality of these different films and the way that we know that yes this is kind of a prequel but you know kind of made using contemporary cinema's rules and i just think that's such a fascinating fascinating idea um yeah it's a really, really interesting moment in a really great score. <laughs> mm. Well, I definitely want to see you write a chapter about that in your next <laughs> yeah. book. Cause I think One you, day. I think you yeah. have to set up for it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> mm. One day. And, and and one one example I'll turn to it in the book, and then I definitely want to make sure we conclude with our Disney related questions, but Another really interesting example that I had never thought about until I read about it was the basically the end credits of The Force Awakens in that you have yeah. almost a back and forth between, uh, I think you said like about the seven and a half minute mark with mm. a back and forth of both, I think it was the Resistance theme and um, and was it uh, from the original it's, uh, it's, film as well? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Ray's theme and the Ray's Force theme. theme. Yeah. My, my apologies. Yes. Mm. What an interesting duality. And yeah. I think your, your book helps bring to light that there's really inventive ways of bringing about uh, the different notable themes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, sorry, the March of the Resistance is a, is a fugue, which is kind of this old musical form. And like, I really, I, th- I think actually I probably will do a video essay on this um, before the year is out, if I get time. Um, but yeah, the, 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 so the March of the Resistance is a fugue, which is this old musical style, which is basically, you know, you establish a melody and then you play that melody backwards underneath the first melody, you know, like you kind of playing off old material with new material throughout the entire piece. That's the way a fugue works. Um, and the March of the Resistance is, is broadly speaking a fugue and you hear that most directly in the end credits, but then yes, you hear that same logic taken to, um, raise them and the force awakens, uh, sorry, the force theme right at the end. It's, it's pretty much the last 
section of the end credits suite, which is, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm one of those people who always sits through the end of the credits, not just because I want to see all the names, but because I can't wait to hear what, you know, particularly here, John Williams has, has cooked up for us. But, um, you know, it, it's so incredible that we go through the whole movie and then John Williams kind of reveals, like, did you notice? Did you notice this, that throughout this film this new theme for this new character it, it it's actually you know uses the same harmony as the main force theme so we can play them side by side you know trading phrases and it totally works and it's just like you know <laughs> apart from yet another moment where you realize that john williams is certainly the you know the the genius of film music um across all times uh, and eras but it's just, it's such a wonderful reveal. It just, you know, it makes so much sense and I think illustrates the whole logic of The Force Awakens uh, in that it's old and new placed side by side and, you know, on top of each other and in different ways, but, you know, still always there and still always with the basis in the old. Um yeah, and I just think, you know, it's such a such a perfect encapsulation of not just the music, but how the film works, really. Well, I, I think that's an apt way of, of summing up the book as well. It honors the past, embraces the new, and examines a lot of it in depth in, in really intriguing ways based on some of the themes, whether it's the, the notion of music or the social commentary or the, the advent of social media and change, channeling uh changing how people channel their their Star Wars passion. So, uh, yeah, a, a very, very fascinating read indeed. It's very kind. <laughs> well, it's, hey, I, uh, I'm i a, a Star Wars buff, perhaps not as much so as uh, some folks, but I, I feel like that this really is accessible for, for folks who, kind of like us, are, are back embedded in academia, but also, you know, a general Star Wars viewer can pick this up and, and get a lot out of it, so... That's really cool. Mm, I'm glad to hear. <laughs> well, Dan, we end every episode of Notably Disney with some Disney-related questions that I ask all of my guests. And mm-hmm. the segment is called Ask My Questions and Get Some Answers, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a nod to Ariel from the Little Mer- Mermaid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, this, this includes uh, some music-related questions, book-related questions, and then a random Disney question. These are all opinion-based, so there are no mm-hmm. right or wrong answers, just what comes to you or speaks to you. So yep. are you ready? I am ready. Hit me. <laughs> all righty. So, and again, we recognize that the world of Disney is very broad. So uh, <laughs> as I joked to you, you know, you have Star Wars and Pixar mm. and Marvel mm. and now I guess Fox, anything Fox is fair game, yeah. probably. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but first question is, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Ah, uh, that is an easy question, I suppose, unless, unless you count. You know, they weren't, Star Wars wasn't owned by Disney when I was growing up, so I don't think that counts. Um, so it's easy to answer. It was definitely Aladdin. Uh, I not only saw that film, like, dozens of times as a kid but i loved the music and listened to it endlessly yep what a great score alan menken is i think one of the most underrated uh film composers ever (laughs) 
Oh, I agree. You know, we love his songs, but his scores are also really, really strong mm-hmm. and poignant, too. Mm-hmm. How about this one? What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Ooh. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, I do a film music show on uh, ABC Classic here in Australia, and actually, uh, the show that is going to air uh, this weekend, uh, we've got a bit of a feature on the new Lion King score. Uh, so I listened to that quite a lot recently in preparation, uh, and uh, now I think, yeah, it's almost certainly the the circle of oh. Is it the circle of life or is it, it's probably, can you feel the love tonight? I think that probably got stuck in my head for about four or five days uh, while revisiting it. I, you know, there are some, some critics of the performances in this new film. I actually haven't seen The Lion King yet. I haven't had a chance, but I probably will either today or tomorrow. But I've listened quite a lot to the score. And I think the performances of uh, Donald Glover and Beyonce in that track they're pretty good, actually. I mean, they're, you know, two of the best singers in the world. Like, it's not a bad recording. But, yeah, uh, so <laughs> definitely, definitely uh, can you feel the love tonight. Great. What Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um... Well, in that sense, actually, I'm going to turn to a Pixar film after uh, they were bought by Disney because a lot of people uh, highlight the music in um, Up and uh, The Incredibles as justifiably having fantastic scores. But um, I actually think Wall-E has got great music, um, not just in the score but also in the way that it uses uh you know one or two tunes from hello dolly uh in the film i just think it's so beautiful and yeah it gets me every time even the peter gabriel end credits tune um yes, <laughs> I yes. Quite like. down to earth yeah yeah but you know probably doesn't quite get as much love as a lot of the others so yeah i'll, I'll say wally hmm. well yeah and thomas newman con- continues to be such a fantastic composer so that's a really good example yeah. mm. so, so the next questions are book related so mm. what is the most recent disney book or disney related book that you've read yeah wow um that is a good question uh i mean i suppose it's probably all to do with research that's that's probably a fairly boring answer <laughs> um uh now what was i reading recently i was reading about um actually um epcot um and disney oh, i can't remember the name of the book this is a very non-satisfying answer for you sorry uh, <laughs> quite, quite all right no yeah no worries. um no, it was it was about it was about Disney and and Epcot and the the World's Fairs because he went to uh, one of the early ones when he was a kid. Um, I was reading about that too. Um, yes, no, sorry, the name of the book escapes me. Sorry, very unsatisfying. Quite all right. Well, hey, it's a Disney Epcot answer, so uh, I'm I'm a yeah. happy guy. That's one of my favorite topics ever. Excellent. If you could if you could write a Disney book on any topic. 
So maybe a forthcoming book. I don't know. But if you could write an, another Disney-related book, mm. uh, what would it be about? Oh, absolutely about the music in one way or another. Um, I mean, you know, like I think, I think you know, there have been some some good books, uh, even from an academic perspective, on the music of Disney. So I don't want to, uh, you know, pretend like it's a it's a totally wide open field, but. Gosh, what would I do? Maybe, maybe contemporary Disney music. Actually, you know what would be fun? I yeah, I think writing a book about uh, the music of the Disney remakes, like the live action remakes. I think that would be super fun to like go through and compare the music of these remakes, the live action films, with their originals, um, because like sometimes they're really close, sometimes they're quite different. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the differences are, are subtle but super interesting. So I, I think there would be so much, so much material there. That's not a bad idea, actually. Maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll do that. Well, and I have a potential t- title for you already. It could be Disney Remixed. Hey, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, if if you go with that, just make sure there's an acknowledgement. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. For In sure. any case, sure. no, I'm just joking. But uh, no, no, no. Yeah. And and then the final question for you, Dan. This is a random one, so this is one that I will only ask of you. Mm. So, what what Star Wars character would you most like to see receive a series on Disney Plus? Ooh, great question. Yeah, gosh, that is such a good question. I feel like, yeah, actually, I wouldn't mind like a young Leia series. You know, like if Leia comes out of, because uh, you know they're making the Cassian Andor series out of Rogue right. One, so we might see a little bit of um, the emerging um, uh, rebellion. I think, yeah, like getting a stronger insight into like her life as you know a, a princess, but also a, a spy. I think there's a lot there um, that could be really interesting i mean i you i don't know if you've um listened to the radio play of the first star wars film um, i can't say i have no yeah like oh uh, it is fantastic it is really good it's from uh like i think maybe 82 or something like that um uh and it actually has mark hamill uh playing luke and it has anthony daniels playing c3po but the rest of the cast is is different um but it's got a lot of the john williams music in it uh, and it's an incredible high quality radio play but it um pulls the plot of the first film out over i don't know how many episodes there is maybe maybe 14, 15, and they're all, um, I think, at least half an hour. So, you know, it really stretches the the plot of the original. And so it's about episode four in the, well, tellingly, uh, you know, episode four or five in the, in the radio play where the actual events of the first film begin. And so it gives you a lot more lead up and a lot more insight into, well, Luke hanging around on Tatooine, being bored and kind of bullied by his friends, um, but also particularly Leia, um, you know, being tracked by Darth Vader in, in events that are now non-canon because Rogue One tells a different story of how we lead up to those moments. But, you know, that kind of insight into, you know, what led her to be on 
you know, the the blockade runner, um, you know, the Tantive, the Tantive. That's a funny thing, you know, there's a minor point of Star Wars lore. It's spelt Tantive for that ship, but it's always pronounced Tantive for, and that's partly because of this radio play. They got the pronunciation wrong, and since then they've always honored it anyway that's (laughs) incredibly small ephemera uh the uh yes so the answer is i think young leia spy adventure series political series i think that would be super interesting and fun well hey we got some fun facts out of the answer too so that's just great (laughs) (laughs) well dan i want to make sure uh that listeners know how to get in touch with you on social media pick up a Mm -hmm. copy of your book if they're interested and also listen to you on other platforms so could you share some of that information yeah absolutely so uh it's all centralized on my website at dangolding.com uh and i'm also at dangolding on twitter um and yeah through my website you'll be able to find things like my youtube channel uh art of the score the podcast that i do um and also links to uh grab a copy of the book it's through the university of minnesota press but it's you know it's, it's available through uh all of your usual uh, booksellers and bookstores and online booksellers and stuff like that so um yeah, and also I love hearing from especially people who've who've read the book and have uh, had a response to it. It's a it's a very particular pleasure for an author to have an engaged uh, chat with people who've uh, who've read the book. So I mean, yeah, definitely get in touch and and thank you, Brett, as well for for this great conversation. I really really appreciated it and enjoyed it. Well, the pleasure is all mine, and I have to say that. The force is strong with this book, and I'm sure <laughs> others will uh, will gravitate toward it as well. So thanks, thanks again for coming on the show, Dan. Absolutely, my pleasure. May the force be with you. And thanks again to Dan for coming on to Notably Disney and talking all about Star Wars after Lucas. It's definitely a really essential read to understand the landscape of Star Wars over the past several years. And as I shared, I hope to see another edition that covers some of the more recent and future content we'll be getting on the Star Wars front. So now we're going to shift gears and discuss my thoughts of D23 Expo 2019. Okay, so some perspective of D23 Expo 2019. This was the fourth time I had been to D23 Expo. I essentially went to the first three in 2009, 2011, and 2013. I was not able to go to 2015 and 2017, but I was super thrilled that I had the opportunity to once again head into the Anaheim Convention Center, walk down those halls, and be around tens of thousands of fellow Disney fans. It was congested, of course, and totally overwhelming with the amazing array of content to be seen over just three days, but I made sure that I packed every minute with a lot of interesting experiences. So this being a music and book podcast primarily on the Disney front, I do want to explore some of my perspectives of those types of experiences because there was an absolute plethora to choose from on just these topics. So my expo experience actually began with going to Talent Central on Friday morning and meeting some of the Disney Broadway stars. And there were actually seven of them to meet and greet with. They signed autographs, took pictures. I probably got about a good minute with each set of them. They actually had them distributed across three tables. So I was really thrilled to meet the original stars of Mary Poppins on Broadway, Ashley Brown and Gavin Lee, 
as well as Mufasa from Broadway. He held a record number of performances, Alton Fitzgerald White. You have the original Tarzan, Josh Strickland, Heidi Blickenstaff, who many of you may know from uh, playing Ursula for The Little Mermaid, as well as both the stage and eventual TV adaptation of Freaky Friday. Kissy Simmons, who played Nala for in The Lion King, and also Clinton Greenspan, who's a new Aladdin. So, so many cool stars in one place, and they're all very personable. And I was able to see uh, all of them, except uh, Clinton, he wasn't performing, but the s- six others were actually the stars of the Disney on Broadway 25th anniversary celebration concert at the D23 Expo Arena on the following day. It was more than an hour and a half long, and it was an absolute spectacular because here you have these amazing, talented, and really just authentic personalities coming out and belting their songs, as well as performing their own renditions of other folks' songs from other musicals. So pretty much the entire Disney Broadway songbook was illustrated, not every single song, of course, but a few tunes from each of the productions. Uh, I was disappointed that there wasn't really anything on the Hunchback of Notre Dame front, but by the same token, that was never made its way um, on Broadway. It was uh, it was a, a side production that a lot of people really gravitated to, but we got a lot of Newsies, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Mary Poppins, the list goes on and on because Disney has had that presence for a quarter of a century now. The performers had a, a little bit of prescripted funny banter between songs. They really just totally encapsulated the audience. You could tell everybody was mesmerized, enjoying hearing these singers in person. And I highly suspect that it this might actually find its way onto other platforms. So yes, it was fantastic to be there in person, but I have a funny feeling that it was filmed for perhaps Disney+. Plus. I noticed there was a sign outside of the venue as we walked in that said that, you know, please note that this will be recorded. And there was a reference to, I think, Lincoln Center Productions, which is a unit out of New York which um, Disney is responsible for. So there there are a lot of clues that made me think, you know what, in light of Disney Plus being such a big push and wanting to generate original content for it, why not not film this and have it be on Disney Plus? So I really hope so. Um, I'm hoping something will be announced over the coming weeks about this because I certainly believe there would be a huge audience for this, not only the six seven thousand folks who were in attendance at the concert but also the many presumably millions of subscribers who will be utilizing disney plus and what a great piece of content to have to be able to showcase these broadway stars so i felt like this was a really appropriate and celebratory tribute to what not only each of them has accomplished in their respective roles but being part of the disney on broadway family it was an amazing time, and I feel really privileged to have been able to be part of it. Uh, I actually wrote some thoughts of 
the concert on DisneyExaminer.com. So if you want to check that out, uh, please go ahead. And there are also some little snippets of the concert uh, on YouTube that is basically a, a reel that uh, Disney produced. So you can see a little bit of footage. There's also a great conversation with the six of those stars on YouTube um, as well, because after right after the concert, they held a, a little conversation about what their careers have entailed so that too you can find shifting gears a little bit another presentation that was really cool and related to music was called the music and sounds of star wars galaxy's edge so while i have yet to make my way to batu i got a little taste of this really incredible star wars experience via this presentation which featured some of the musicians and performers responsible for developing the content. So you have Disney Imagineers and and musical talent discussing what it was like to take this land to another level, drawing upon the influence of John Williams, who composed that really cool five-minute suite that uh, many of you have now heard, but really diving into the little audio clips you might hear if you're just walking around Black Spire Outpost. And it was really neat to get those clips, whether it be hearing uh, the Wookiee shampoo commercial or listening to how uh, John Dennis was responsible for taking that famous piece of music, Yoda's theme, remember that from Empire Strikes Back? And, and utilizing it in a really special way via the Savvy's Workshop experience. So we got a, little, a lot of little discussions. It obviously all contained the same narrative of here's how we created the music and sounds for this amazing land. And then it culminated in a really cool little concert of sorts. We had Judith Hill, the singer, and her um, and her fellow musicians, they are performing the song, uh, let me pronounce it, Ula Shuka. And we actually walked away with uh, some, uh, basically a digital version of some of the pieces that you can hear in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. So it was just about an hour long. The audience was pretty interested and engaged. Many of them, I would say almost all of them, had been in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge when they asked, who's actually been to Batu? I felt a little bit awkward saying, eh, not, or thinking to myself, I should say, eh, not quite yet, but hopefully I'll head over there sometime soon. And certainly hearing more of the music and sounds from this incredible land really increased my desire of heading over there. Another cool panel that wasn't necessarily solely focused on music, like the Star Wars one, but it touched a little bit on the notion of writing in an attraction, was the Haunted Mansion Celebrating 50 Years presentation also in the D23 Expo Arena. So yes, this did not really focus much on music, but here on Notably Disney, we love talking about tunes and also good writing. And where it, can you find some of the most clever and inventive writing in all of the Disney theme parks? Well, none other than Haunted Mansion and the, and the script by Exitensio. It was actually his granddaughter, Kelsey McAuliffe, who's an Imagineer, 
who came out to talk about those memories with X and more importantly, helping deliver the original 1968 dramatic reading of the Haunted Mansion script. And so Kelsey played the role of uh, Madame Leota or the mystery of medium. She didn't quite have that name at that point. It was not Leota, it was mysterious medium. And she was joined by an eclectic array of characters. First, we had Sally Slater. You might not recognize the name, but that's the name of the character who plays the tightrope walking lady. If you recall being in the stretching room and, and seeing her on that little tightrope above the gator. So we had a, a performer come out and play Sally Slater, and she read uh, some of the script. And who played the role of ghost host? Uncle Deadly from the Muppets. Now, it may not be the most common Muppet. It's not a Fozzie Bear or Gonzo, but you know Uncle Deadly. He's the almost phantom-like character. He's a reptilian creature who, if you saw the recent Muppets TV series on ABC, he was working with Miss Piggy a lot. He's very dramatic and such a clever character. So the Muppeteers and Uncle Dudley came out to play the role of the coast host. And here we got about 10-15 minutes of the, of the entire script. It was really cool to identify some of the distinctions between what was read there and what actually materialized in the actual attraction. And I just absolutely it was enthralled. I was laughing so much with seeing and hearing Uncle Deadly. I think that may have been my favorite part. As much as I was loving anything Haunted Mansion, the fact that there was a bit of a Muppets presence really struck me in a positive way. So those were two really cool panels in the D23 Expo Arena. There were others throughout the weekend that unfortunately I was not able to attend. There was the a musical Journey of Aladdin, there was a Tarzan panel, Dancing with the Stars, if that strikes your fancy, among others. But I would say I was really pleased with the content I saw in those venues. In addition, there was some cool book-related stuff. First, it's worth noting that I was able to uh, briefly reunite with my friend and author Jeff Curdy, who is signing several books of his over the course of the weekend and Jeff was uh, when I got to see him he was signing for the travels with Walt book um, the, the book about Walt and his various adventures over the course of his career and going to international destinations so it was good to see him over that and he was also promoting his Art of Disney costuming book which actually came in the form of not only uh, the book and a presentation, but also there was an entire exhibit centered around Disney costuming, and there were quotes and references to the book in that venue. So it was really neat to see dozens of these Disney costumes on display. So we saw everything from Johnny Depp's costume for Jack Sparrow to uh, the Gaston and Beast from uh, the 2017 iteration of Beauty and the Beast. So lots of different costumes on display. I probably was most excited to see the costumes from Hocus Pocus, the trio of witches, and even the vacuum. So that was really neat. And 
was a really nice tie-in to the book. I'm glad they, they were able to allow there to be that synergy between Walt Disney Archives and also Disney Publishing. Disney Publishing had a booth of sorts, a little area on the show floor where they were selling both books that have debuted over the past year or so, um, as well as some upcoming books, and a number of them sold out very quickly. So you really had to be quick to get your hands on those copies, and, and many of those authors were signing books throughout the weekend. As I shared with you in the D23 Expo preview episode, there were several panels throughout the weekend that were related to these individual books, and the authors were there to sign them. Among the presentations I saw was the Kevin Rafferty presentation. I talked a little bit about it on the previous episode with Joel Grinke. It was where he and his editor, Wendy Lefkon, talked about translating his 40-plus year career into a really nice little hardcover book. And he, uh, he and Wendy talked about the work on the Walt Disney Archive stage, and it was a fantastic one-hour presentation. There were a lot of cool slides that showed pictures of Kevin over the course of his career. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm, I'm a real sucker for seeing the evolution of an individual's journey with the company and for one to have so much energy and positivity like Kevin made it really fulfilling as an audience member. I felt like we were there with him vicariously and it was so neat and there were many of these other opportunities throughout the weekend for folks who wanted to check out the authors in person. So I really have to give D23 Expo and the D23 team a lot of credit for having seemingly more outlets than in past expos, or at least the ones that I had attended in regards to these book-related presentations. And there were a lot of performances too, as I mentioned, not only the Disney on Broadway concert and then some of these presentations related to individual films, but you also had some singing on the center stage. There were a lot of great talks, um, some of them related to different uh, book or music related efforts. So like I, for instance, I saw a, a little presentation featuring Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez, who are the songwriters for Frozen. So there was really so much to choose from. And I continually felt like I, I didn't know where to go because I had such a packed schedule and I wanted to cram in every minute with cool content. Sometimes I engaged in things spontaneously, like uh, speaking of great voices and, and great writing, I was able to check out a conversation with Christy Carlson Romano, who played the voice of Kim Possible, and she was on Even Stevens, and she talked about what it was like to voice that iconic character. There were other examples of that throughout the weekend. On the music front, too, I want to note that having been at the Parks panel, the Parks ex uh, Experiences Consumer Products, that huge uh, demonstration at Hall D23, we got a bit of music there, too. So for me, the standout was hearing the composer Pinar Toprak and a really great band perform what essentially is going to be Epcot's new theme. We also heard a song from uh, Magic Happens, which is the new parade in Disneyland, and that was performed by Jordan Fisher. So there was a lot of really interesting 
music that actually surfaced during a presentation that where you wouldn't expect there to be music. And how could I forget that? We got a little bit of step in time from Mary Poppins. There were some actors playing chimney sweeps and out comes Dick Van Dyke to help announce the new Mary Poppins area of Epcot. So full musical moments surfaced throughout the weekend. Even in the, the Disney Plus panel, we got the performers from High School Musical, the musical, the series, uh, perform one of the classic tunes from the Disney Channel film, and now it's manifesting in this Disney Plus original series. So lots of music, lots of book content throughout the weekend. There continues to be more content appearing online based on folks' experiences. Suffice it to say, I had a blast. I was certainly frustrated, like everybody else, with the initial issues with the reservation system and the the virtual queue. I fared very well, and I feel fortunate for that, but uh, not everybody was so lucky. And there were also some different issues that emerged once people were at the expo in terms of understanding where to go for lines. That said, I felt like line management has significantly improved over time, certainly from when I was last at the expo in 2013. I know folks who had gone to the 2017 iteration also noted that it had improved since last time's expo. So you have to give the team credit that they are making improvements. There continues to be miscommunication and uh, misunderstandings, but I think that is to be expected with an event that boasts tens of thousands of people and a lot of activity and a, a lot to account for. So I think D23 Expo remains one of the coolest and most unique Disney experiences that you can have if you are a fan of the parks, the films, television, music books, really any division of the company, any arena, whether it's Pixar or Marvel or Star Wars, even National Geographic, anything under the Disney umbrella, you can find it at D23 Expo. I am super thrilled for 2021. I hope to be able to make it there. And even if not, I, I sure know that I can expect a lot of the neat content to materialize in one form or another online after the fact. So it was a great experience, and I'm glad that Notably Disney has been a venue kind of complimenting other podcasts and blogs to relay some of these people's experiences, some of my fellow guests and friends and attendees to hear what they've experienced is almost as fun because, you know, we all have different entry points to D23, D23 Expo, and ultimately, because there is so much content, we all end up generally experiencing different types of things. So having these conversations is a blast, and I hope you've enjoyed it with me. And some of the content that came out of D23 Expo will emerge as pieces of content and discussions, more importantly, for future episodes of Notably Disney. So I look forward to you joining me on that journey as we continue to see the amazing new material that comes out of the Walt Disney Company. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. 
So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.